Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode coming out of the first IndyCar race of the year. No, uh, it kind of felt like it in some regards, though. Annual trip to Daytona, Rolex 24 Daytona, I think 11 IndyCar drivers in the field, some IndyCar teams, not a surprise, coming out of the Rolex 24 on our IndyCar listener Q&A show. We're going to open with a lot of questions about IndyCar kind of sort of stuff going down at Daytona last weekend, IMSA's big season opener. I want to say thank you as always to you for the great questions you send in, some of the comments that come along, uh, the rants, which we don't get that many of. I enjoy those. Normally, I'm the one with the rants, but I do enjoy your rants, so don't be afraid to send those in. Can't guarantee they're going to get used, but always love that little bit of spiciness where it's warranted. As well, let's say a big thank you to Cooper Tires, Power the Road to Indy. There's a test. It's what Tuesday and Wednesday, I believe. My home track, WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca. Fortunately, we have new appointments on Tuesday and Wednesday that will prevent me from going down. But nonetheless, big thanks to Cooper Tires for supporting our show and the Road to Indy. Justice Brothers as well. Fine, fine manufacturers of automotive, chemicals, lubricants, additives, all kinds of great stuff you might consider. Then finally, say a huge thank you as well to TorontoMotorsports.com, motor racing memorabilia, the good stuff. So pay a visit. Lots of IndyCar stuff, IndyCar swag, stickers, T-shirts, hats, models, all kinds of goodies. TorontoMotorsports.com. Last bit before we rock and roll with your Q's and hopefully some A's. Prudayrocks at gmail.com. It's an address to use if you want to join in with the self-generated listener group that surround the podcast, IndyCar, sports cars, bench racing, take good care of one another too, having a bad day. It's a group of 100 plus. Keeps growing. Folks who just have come together and chop up the show, the sport, themselves, society, a lot of humor, a lot of humor going on there. If you're looking for some new friends, you might check them out. Prude, P-R-U-E-D-A-Y, rocks, R-O-C-K-S, Prude rocks at gmail.com. One of the fine men or fine women, some of the leaders of that group will probably take a couple days to get your email. They'll get you involved, and off you go. So, speaking of off we go, a little bit of music bed. I really do love the, uh, the surf rock music intro, outro, and music bed I've gone with this year. I've had this thing for years, but just never really wondered or felt or was sure if it would be liked. And I came to the determination, y'all, that if I like it, I'd hope y'all like it too. All right, where are we going first? Go to our pal Brian Burrell opening the show. A little bit of a theme here. First two questions, he and Craig Johnson. First one from Brian says, Meyer Shank Racing just impresses the bleep out of me with what they've built. While they have a longer history in sports cars, could you imagine telling 2010 Mike Shank, the 60th running of the Rolex 24, he would have to pick between putting in one of his full-time IndyCar drivers we're both Indy 500 winners and sports car champions. And Simon Pagano and Elio Castroneves 
and make that decision after Elio won his fourth Indy 500 with Mike's IndyCar team, which sure as heck did not exist back in 2010. says, I know Mr. Shank has a plan, stuck to building his IndyCar program in a methodical fashion, but did even he envision this? So, easy answer, no, no, (laughs) no, with a side order of no, you hope, right? You dream, you do all those things you allow yourself to creep in every now and then. I was texting with a friend of mine on the team over the weekend, and it's the same thing. They've won the Indy 500 back in 2012 when it was a much smaller team. They won their first Rolex 24 Daytona. And even then, even back then, it was a big deal. I mean, the Shank team's always been good. But 10 years ago, being able to knock off Ganassi and Wayne Taylor and Action Express and a bunch of really, really good teams, bigger teams, more established teams. 10 years ago, Brian, it was a big freaking deal. So to think of how far they've come, not only winning the Indy 500 with Elio, I would actually say this Rolex 24 victory is the biggest statement maker so far for them. Say that because last year, Indy, it's Elio. You can never count Elio out. Team, though, had not proven itself to be really worthy of front-running victory consideration. That was recalibrated, of course, but you look at the rest of the season, think about the couple of uh, races that Elio did, showed some good stuff. You look at the season-long stuff, and you go, hey, Jack Harvey, very good, but nothing that said, aha, routine winners, Meyershank Racing. Add that to last year in IMSA, their first year, with this ARX 05, this Acura prototype, they did well. Eh, they weren't great. There was a pretty big difference to start between themselves and fellow Acura factory team Wayne Taylor Racing. There was a pretty hefty difference, Brian, in the speed, the, the quality, the everything. They went into the offseason saying, all right, Made these changes to the IndyCar program. We think they're going to be good. We got, as you mentioned, Elio and Simon. That's all fantastic. The IMSA side, it's a little shakier. We're going to have to truly kind of blow this out of the water a little bit. Replace both full-time drivers. Very different approaches to approach to their IMSA program. Other bit of a, a stinging or lingering thing here. Of all the teams in IMSA's top DPI class last year, every single team won a race, except for Meyershank Racing. They're the only ones that got blanked in victory lane. So here we are, <laughs> first IMSA race of the year, brand new lineup, a lot of things to prove and show after, again, underperforming and underwhelming last year. Their ability to come back season opener and win. Can I rate this as probably the biggest statement maker they've had so far? Of course, an Indy victory is amazing, but it's not like, again, 
indie indie's a very different creature. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think it'd be fair to say in 2020, Meyer Shank was knocking on the door at the 500, and boy, when they came back and added Elio, that the whole paddock was looking to them uh, for victory. So amazing achievement, but definitely a little bit out of left field in terms of expectations. What we have here uh, to close on this uh, question of yours to open, Brian, is we have a team that was not sharp last year in DPI. They improved without a doubt as the year went on, but they just weren't where they needed to be. They addressed those shortcomings, came back, beat Wayne Taylor Racing. It's another thing we can't overlook. Wayne Taylor Racing going for their fourth Rolex 24 victory in a row, won last year on debut with Acura, right? That was a big deal. Got Shank with the Acura, Taylor with the Acura, WTR, super competitive. Shank, not so much. Not only does MSR come back this year much sharper of a weapon, but they knock down WTR. They're stable mates, but also, again, kind of a, whoa, right? They'd won four out of the last five, I think. They took down Wayne Taylor Racing's Acura to win for Acura to get their first win in DPI with Acura. So that's why this stands out. That's why I'm just so happy for them and for Elio, too. Just driving like an animal. <laughs> uh, how can you not love that? So thanks uh, thanks to open the show here, Brian. Craig, you say, um, is momentum transferable? Can Shank take their sports car success, start the season off well in IndyCar? Say, hashtag me personally would think a, a culture of winning could help the entire building without a doubt, man, without a doubt, I would imagine Mike would have a few more people from say the IMSA program coming to St. Pete just to make sure they are, are over provisioned with staff, make things go a little smoother, a little easier as they relaunch the team two new full-time drivers. I know Elio was there for whatever it was, six races last year, but brand new full-time campaign for the 46-year-old. Brand new campaign for Simon as well. I would say without a doubt, and you also know that uh, some of the IndyCar team was there at Daytona, assisting in those support-type roles as well. I think there's absolute culture development going on here it's not as if they haven't won some major races before they've done a lot of sports car winning over the years champions in sports cars in the gt class uh the the gtd pro-am class with acura so there's the right culture there most teams have some form of winning culture that they could point to there's a difference though and is it growing is it amplifying the standards as they increase with each moment of success. It's everyone being held to a newer level and then a newer level, right? You have the rest on your laurels culture of winning. Hey, boy, we win a lot and gosh and golly, we're good and right. And then you have the, hey, it's amazing. See what we achieved and guess what? 
uh, you have precisely 24 hours, maybe 48 to go wild and whatever. But once that period of time is over, uh, it's forgotten because we got to do better because that thing that we did, that's amazing. It's in the past. <laughs> that's a thing that sucks, right? Ah, I won this great race. Yeah. Within a few days, it's like, okay, cool. So how are we going to go in the next one? But, but can't we celebrate well, you, when you're old? When you're old, you can stare at the trophies and polish the rings and do whatever you want. But hey, now we got to go do it again, but it's probably going to get harder. And so it's just that aspect, Craig, that I appreciate among the great teams. Roger Penske started out and he did not win championships and win races and et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't all just come easily, right? They didn't have everything they wanted, didn't have all the personnel, didn't have the right procedures, didn't have the right managers. And they had a lot that worked. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that even IndyCar's most successful team at some point had to start out without everything being perfect and without victories just coming nonstop and they had to make those tweaks make those changes and continue to hold themselves to higher and higher levels so this just circles back to me for Meyer shank racing where they have a really good glimpse of what they need to do in indycar to succeed especially with the arrival of elio especially with simon simon is a driver of a hard bargain Simon's not someone who is easily satisfied. Not saying Elio's just a big old ball of joy when things are going the wrong way, but Simon has a maybe a greater reputation of holding the line. It's great. Congratulations, Indy 500, couple Rolex 24s and championships. Great. I do not give a single stinky fart. <laughs> This is where we need to be. I've been there in IndyCar. This is where we need to be. These are the areas where I see, boy, we're really close. These are the ones, not so much. So guess what? I don't care what kind of banners are hanging in the rafters here at the shop. I'm focusing on the things we aren't doing that are holding us back from being our best. That's the cool stuff, Craig. That's the stuff where I love this aspect of racing. And it's no different than any other team-based sport. Especially when you've got a Pagenaud type, a quarterback type on the team saying, nope, we are, we're not doing the easy stuff. We're doing the hard stuff so we can excel in any conditions. We're going to up our game and everywhere that I see we need to do so. I love that stuff. So I do think that it's transferable, air quotes, but I don't think that winning the Rolex 24 is going to make their IndyCar season any easier. I think what it's done is it's given Elio and Simon a chance as MSR teammates to have a glimpse and better glimpse into how the team operates. They're going to carry some of that over to the IndyCar season, make things a little bit better. Uh, this is a good early look for them. Let's go to Jamie Rowe. Jamie, how you doing, my friend? He says, it was awesome to see so many IndyCar drivers on the podium, the top two classes at Daytona. Five new Rolexes will be rattling around the paddock 
Most impressed with the strong drives from Renus VK and Devlin DeFrancesco. Mention here is a little sidebar, Jamie. Don't know why, but it seemed like Renus was almost invisible in LMP2 by comparison to the class-winning entry piloted by, we're just talking IndyCar drivers, Devlin, Colton Herta, and Pato O'Ward, along with Eric Lux. Don't know why that was. And I know that he was mentioned once or twice, don't get me wrong, but it just seemed like, hey, you've kind of got a really good driver in the class who's, I don't know, a bit of a star. Not sure why he got less love, but anyways. But uh, you go on to say you're impressed by the strong drives from Renus and Devlin DeFrancesco. He says, hashtag me personally. I think way too many people are discounting Devlin as a buy-a-ride guy. Says, uh, by the way, that's just usually referred to as a ride buyer. Uh, save yourself a couple letters here. Uh, says he was fast at Daytona, and I think will surprise many with his performance in IndyCar. What is your take on the driver of the number 29 Andretti Steinbrenner Honda? Uh, big fan of Devlin. Have been since I met him four or five years ago, however long it was. Uh, love the kid. Great energy. Great effort on his part, right? Someone who is constantly looking for ways to be better and to improve himself. Really, really enjoy him. His dad, Andy, is just a hoot. Like, he's just, that guy's awesome. He's hilarious. Uh, so, all the time in the world for the DeFrancescos. Overstating or restating, I really wish he'd be returning to Indy Lights this year because I think there's still some more education for him to get. Timing-wise, though, timing worked out for him to move to IndyCar into a prime seat. Wouldn't necessarily be available, uh, say, in 2023, so I get the timing. Can't discount what you're saying about seeing him drive and drive hard and well and, and all those things in LMP2, Jamie. This is not meant as a criticism of Devlin. This is just a general statement. We saw some stints where Colton Herta and Pato O'Ward failed to distinguish themselves significantly, either in lap time or building a gap or, or drawing down a gap to some drivers who maybe some of you provided you watched the Rolex 24 and never heard of before and will probably never think of again. And so does that mean our drivers aren't as good as we'd hope? No. What it means is if you are a highly skilled race car driver, like Devlin, like the vast majority of the, the pro grade drivers who compete in LMP2, Jamie, getting a hundred percent out of the cars is not, it's hard. Again, for us mortals, we'd never even come close. But I'm just saying, at the pro level, you don't hear the 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 high quality drivers saying, "Oh my gosh, this thing's almost killing me every lap, and I don't know if I can do it." And it no, even drivers who we would say would be mid to tail enders in IndyCar can go out and drive a P2 car on the limit and do that for their entire stints just why i'd say i would not take devlin's performances in this car as an indicator of what's going to come in indycar and that's because 
as I've mentioned, he needs a little bit more time to learn, a little bit more time in the oven that he's not going to get. At the limit of IndyCar, that's a place where very few are capable of living and doing it consistently and winning races and championships and being on that outer edge. That is a Colton Herta. That is a award, New Garden, Dixon, Power, etc. Right, we got some amazing drivers in IndyCar who can do that. Rossi, etc., etc. I would not put my expectations on Devlin to be living on that crazy outer edge for short bursts, much less long bursts, especially as a rookie. So you can get there far easier in a P2 car than you can an Indy car. This is going to be the kind of thing we're looking for, not necessarily at St. Pete to open the season, not necessarily at Texas, uh, Long Beach, and so on. But as we get to June, go to Belle Isle, go to Road America, get to Mid-Ohio, etc. in July. This is where I'm starting to look and see where a Devlin with X amount of races under his belt uh, X amount of laps under his belt. Uh, Tatiana Calderon uh, and a few other of the rookies where you go, hey, we're not at questioning whether you have skill. We're just acknowledging you're not coming in having either conquered the last open wheel championship you were in or you're, you're not coming in with a ton of mileage for us to set our expectations super high. Kyle Kirkwood, different animal. Uh, test an IndyCar four times now, going to be in it a fifth time before the season starts. Obviously, he is torn through the road to Indy champion at every level. Right? We have a reason to say, hey, <laughs> uh, whatever the limit is for your Foyt car, we expect you to be at it, if not a little bit beyond, because that's the kind of potential you've demonstrated. Haven't seen that yet from Devlin. Tatiana's done two tests, right? How silly would it be? Uh, for any of us to place heightened expectations for her to come straight out and dominate or, you know, whoop up on a lot of people. Let's get to about mid-season, Jamie. That, that's that's my mental timeline where by then we should be able to say, okay, had enough laps, enough time for us to get a real feel for where you are at in your development. Hopefully it's, it's farther up than any of us could predict. I'm going to do what I shouldn't do here. Drink a little sip of coffee. At 5.50 p.m. on a Monday evening. So strange not having a football game to watch or something like that. Although I think my Warriors are playing right now. I should hurry up. Uh, someone with maybe the best Twitter handle. Uh, at Inaway did no wrong. Talkie Inaway did nothing wrong is uh, the typed out name here on the Twitters. Marshall, is there an update available for the corner worker who was sent to the hospital, the Rolex 24? Waiting to get the full details here. Can mention, and I'm impressed with this, the uh, the driver who crashed uh, and then ended up injuring the corner worker is asked, wants to reach out and connect with that corner worker and, and see how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. I've heard there might be, might have been some damage to an extremity or two, but I don't have a hundred percent confirmation on that. So 
injury, yes, but um, nothing in theory that would uh, prevent them from leading a full, happy, and long life afterwards. So uh, if I get more of an update, which I should, probably drop that into the Week in Sports Cars show, uh, which we may already have a question there about this. All right, uh, I think I'm just going to tab through some of the questiones. All right, we've got one or two more. Uh, Kobayashi to IndyCar is the topic from Chase and Akiri. AMP, every year when Daytona rolls around, I'm reminded of how much I would love to see Kamui Kobayashi in IndyCar. Says your racer article about him and his interest last year mentioned this, right? He did have an interest in IndyCar. Say if Toyota were to join as a third OEM, do you think there's a chance we might see him? Or has that ship sailed, especially after he was named team principal of their WEC program? trying to remember was it kamui who was the principal or was that uh nakajima-san um i believe i also saw something about kamui doing more super formula in japan too so here's what i can tell you if toyota were to come in or if he were to stop driving for toyota i think there would be a bidding war for his services uh wow just wow right uh this guy just beats up on everybody he races against and since there are so many indy cars who get beaten up on by him uh, some indy car team owners that get wore out by him every year at daytona i can tell you whether it's coming in through toyota or his availability independent of toyota it'd be fireworks um I'd love to see it too from a standpoint of a Japanese driver, young, still youngish, right? Who, while needing to get to know the ovals in a quality team, I think we'd be talking about Kamui as a threat at every road and street course. And we have had a number of Japanese drivers in IndyCar over the years. Takuma-san, obviously, Sato-san. He's been here for, what, 10, 12 years, something like that. Obviously done amazing things for himself. 2,500 wins, a number of road or street course wins. Never really a championship threat. Also, you know, except for a year or two with RLL, too inconsistent in terms of do you go to every round and worry or think about Takuma, much less worry about Takuma. Sadly, as I see it in my world, the answer has been no. And so just knowing that there, we've never had that watch out. <laughs> this guy's going to kick your ass uh, in the right team type Japanese driver. I would love, love to see Kamui over here because, yeah, that guy brings the brings the heat. He's a dick as well. He's just a dick. And so we've had some recent questions about drama and heels and bad guys and whatnot, and I'm telling you, uh, there would be, they would need to have the, the little gold rope some bouncers, kind of valet-type stuff for drivers to see Kamui Kobayashi at whatever team he's at to register a formal complaint 
about whether it's his driving is whatever comments and again we'd be smart and have bouncers there so that those drivers don't try and you know bop him upside the head but i have no idea if he can bring the fisticuffs but he does seem like a guy who would probably get a little punchy too if you try to get punchy with him so again he's a dick but he's so good that i honestly on the track and off the track i need to call rp and tell him how do, how do we do this make this happen uh we're going to be on sports center after every race with uh the the, the nonsense fisticuffs and otherwise that comes with the Kamui Kobayashi show. So again, I don't really have much affinity for him as a person, but if you haven't heard it in my voice, like, man, who cares whether I'd want to send that guy Christmas cards or not? Ah, oh, that guy'd be transcendent in IndyCar. Uh, let's go to James Malloy. I think James, we're, uh, we're closing. Here we go. I think we're closing with, uh, your, Rolex 24th related thing. You said in relation to the NBC broadcast drew criticism is NBC's tendency to NASCARize non NASCAR motorsports. Is that a cause for concern? Also, uh, you say it, it seems like any big motorsports event, including the 8500 gets overrun with NASCAR personalities doing random antics rather than focusing on the race itself. This is hashtag me personally. If you're a newer listener, by the way, and you're wondering why I got the hashtag me personally, it's my, it's the redundancy that I hate most that people use. It's like a virus. When people say me personally, it's the same thing. You don't have to say person, just say me, just say, I just say personally, you just, you don't need both of them. So long running kind of joke. So some of the, uh, uh, veteran listeners throw in uh, hashtag me personally here for our amusement. Says, uh, I don't like having the NASCAR guys tossed into every other motorsports broadcast. Also, shout out to Marcus Erickson for correcting host Samantha Richardson for calling the Rolex 24 a quote preseason warm up. I didn't catch that part, but uh, keep fighting the good fight, Marcus Erickson. I would normally agree with you, James. This. Rolex 24, though, I actually enjoyed the NASCAR-ish influence for two things. Dragging out Dale Jr., which has been done a couple of times, right, I believe, for the Indy 500 and now for the Rolex 24 and such. First time or two seemed a little bit, hey, just a tactic to get NASCAR people to tune in, NASCAR fans, truly. This is just a marketing ploy. Telling you, uh, I, the levels of newfound respect I have for Dale Earnhardt Jr. In his commentary capabilities, grasping the nuances, explaining some of the nuances, despite not being a real road racing expert, despite having not done the Rolex 24 in 20 years or whatever it is. I was genuinely impressed with him when he was in the booth with, I think what Hinch and whomever else, like thinking he might be deferring to someone else to do some of the deeper dives. No, not at all. So truly went in with low expectations and that's not meant as a discount him. Just saying, as you are mentioning, Hey, we're bringing in the big famous name fish out of water. Maybe that'll get some extra ratings. 
if he popped up at like midnight with no one announcing he was going to be part of the broadcast and he was just there with the lowest at the lowest viewing hours lowest nielsen numbers fewest amount of folks and they just dropped him in there i would be saying the same thing like wow this dude held his own was additive left some really good insights and fits really impressed me uh jeff burton i enjoyed his his aw shucks i don't know what this is could you explain it to me approach because i thought you know what imps is going through a little bit of a, a a growth it's on the rise i'm hoping there are decent number of new fans checking in and i thought so many of jeff's questions where whether it was an act or whether it was genuine i thought he did an amazing job of not talking down dumbing things down for the sake of right right just putting on an air hey how does this work do you like that why do you do this what's this over here i again i might be the only person but i thought he did a really good job of revealing a lot of things adding some explanations to things that many of us take for granted who've probably watched this race or know sports car racing inside and out i thought he did a really good job of humanizing the simpler stuff and presenting that maybe to folks even some who've watched sports car racing from time to time but always wondered about this or that so I thought the two of them did a great job. Steve Letarte, I got all the time for in the world. Um, him being in kind of the, the lead role, I don't know if I like that so much because he's, as a crew chief engineer type, usually someone who's asking a lot of questions or breaking things down in a fairly deep way. I got plenty of time for him. We'll agree with you to close here, James. Some of the music choices country-ish uh there was a general we're hoping to appease nascar fans the stereotype of what a nascar fan is i should say we're hoping to appease that stereotypical nascar fan who we hope or think is tuning in with music that's comfortable with personalities that are comfortable The thing I've heard counter to this, it's not necessarily Rolex 24 related. My friend Anders Krohn, former NBC broadcaster, might be in the booth, might be on pit lane, mostly Indy Lights, a little bit of IndyCar. Also IndyCar radio, you name it. I know for a fact, one of the reasons that Anders, who I thought was phenomenal and brought such fascinating insights to the broadcast, hit a bit of a brick wall with NBC it's because they thought that he was too in-depth, too tech, too inside baseball, not appealing to the widest of masses, widest, I should over-enunciate, not whitest, might be one of the same thing who knows but the widest of audiences definitely do not 
go too deep into things. I think that's a shame. Uh, it's a culture that just, it's garbage. Uh, so one of the complaints that I've had about IndyCar now for a little while, definitely since Jan Bikas uh, has not been on the airwaves, is, hey, I mean, I'd love it if they asked me, but whomever it is, get someone on the broadcast who's going to go deep, right? Talk to us about race strategy, fuel strategy, tire strategy, not just before, during. Hey, I see I see this trend emerging. Could this team be trying to do something to leapfrog to the front? This is how it would pay off. This is how it would fail. Hey, keep an eye on this. Talk about the technical side. Hey, driver is saying this. Engineer has these four options that they can modify during the next, next pit stop to try and fix that. What's the traditional thing you do? You do this. What's the, the gamble, the roll the dice you do to fix it? It's that. What does this scenario call for? Is it early in the race, late in the race, middle? Where's the, the driver in the field? What, boy, what feels like the right call? Turn on a football game where you have the ex-quarterback as one of the co-anchors. What do you get? Or again, could be ex-lineman, could be whatever. You get them if not calling out the plays before they happen, telling you, hey, fan at home, who's maybe never played football, who probably knows none of the plays whatsoever, but in this, the way that they appear to be lining up their wide receivers, this is the type of defense that I think they're going to call for to try and stop them from doing this thing. You get someone who is trying to make you smarter so you aren't just watching pretty cars going in circles or watch large and fast men run and crash into each other. They're trying to break down the game so you are an expert at home, but not to the point where your ear, your brain falls out of your ears because you're like, oh my God, I can't process. Formula One's done an amazing job of this for a few years now. And IndyCar needs this. So I'm just throwing in some extra stuff here, as I do sometimes, James. But I get you. Uh, the NASCAR side, definitely I could say maybe pushing a little too far in the widest, most accessible direction. Uh, IMSA could certainly use someone that is a little more dedicated to that during their broadcast. Calvin Fish, I think does a, a really good job, but he also has, you know, often lead co-lead commentary duties, but an IndyCar for sure to circle back. <sighs> yeah. Danica or Dale or whomever, Steve on the timing stand at Indy. Um, yeah. Uh, it maybe bothers me a little bit more there move on to todd hudson he says hey mp very sorry about the hearing issues you're having however it does lead to my question what toll does an indycar have on its driver's hearing does the exhaust note being further back assist say in fewer decibels to their ears do the in-ear devices for communications also double as sound protection um See, as someone who has worked in loud environments i've always been sensitive to my ears and protect them with high quality earplugs not just foam, although they are better than nothing. Uh, says, I wish you a full and speedy recovery. Todd, 
don't hesitate to reach out and let me know what those high quality earplugs are that you use. Uh, I do use the little foamies at every race. Actually, uh, each year when I get my new hard card in the lanyard, I use a little razor and cut a little slit in the lanyard. And then I have a little capsule, threaded capsule thingy with the foam earplugs on the end of a little loop and feed that through so it's always hanging always accessible on my hard card but hey if you got higher end ones i should know about please tell me uh thanks for the note too uh feels like i've had pretty decent improvement uh, after going through the two shots of uh steroid in my left ear ringing is still there and it's really like not my friend but obviously hoping and praying for myself each morning that this improves to the point of no longer being an issue uh, really does depend on the era. Uh, and uh, yeah. So if you're talking to older race car drivers, seventies, eighties, maybe even nineties, it's not uncommon if you have to raise your voice a little bit when you're talking to them, um, younger ones. Yeah. I, I think, in the modern era at least and modern might be 20 ish plus 25 years or so it's been pretty decent uh earpiece technology where it's not just sticking little tiny uh earbud mics into your ear canals but actual custom foam uh designs that get made that do fill the entire ear with the mics, uh, the microphones, the little speakers embedded into them for you. For a long time, IndyCar has had other technology inserted into the earbuds to um, to measure G-forces and whatnot in a crash. But yeah, uh, it's loud. I mean, there there's no getting away from the fact that even if the engine is behind you, you often have drivers right in front of you or alongside you, and you're hearing all of that at a very significant volume, even though you have earplugs and radio communications going on. Um, I don't want to make a blanket statement because we'll have to find out here in however many years, but I do think that since IndyCar racing and most forms of racing off the top of my head, mid-90s, early-ish 90s, where the the uh, foam ear custom moldings became uh, the norm, it does feel like uh, I'm talking to drivers who competed and the volume at which we have the conversation is lower. So I think current generation and, and, and whatnot moving forward, you do a job for 20 years where racing engines are being blasted even with ear protection i gotta believe you're going to deal with a little bit of loss but probably better than the old days where yeah there wasn't nothing and these were much louder and fiercer motors uh kevin frederico you doing kev feels like it's been a little while since i've uh, uh read a question of yours uh, we're gonna talk about takuma sato says, MP, hope your hearing is coming back and your wife is staying strong. 
Well, she is because she's amazing and I love her and she inspires me, y'all. Is this the part of the show where I just start randomly gushing about my wife? I think it is. I should do it in the beginning, shouldn't I? All right, I'm an idiot. Um, she can't hear any of this too. She'd probably come in and smack me in the head if I did, but she just is such an inspiration, y'all. She really is. Like how, how cool or crazy is that? To have your spouse, loved one, partner, whatever, be a massive daily inspiration from their attitude, their achievements, breakthroughs, um, everything that she deals with on a daily basis related to her fight to win and overcome breast cancer and to win and overcome significant mobility challenges. Um, yeah, I am a big old softy there, and I just look at her sometimes in amazement because she's made of stuff that I'm not. <laughs> it's just a fact. It's not one of those kind of, you know, Things guys saying, oh, my wife, oh, she's amazing. Oh, boy, I could never deal. No, for real. Like, she is made of, of hardened, hardened material that I am not. And the fact that she has not hardened and become angry and bitter and all those things, just her spirit is a beautiful thing. So thanks for asking, man, or thanks for mentioning it. Yeah, um, that's just my opportunity to uh, gush on my girl a little bit. Um Say any word on who will partner on the engineering stand for Takuma Sato at Dale Coin? Uh, I don't, but that's because I haven't asked. So uh, I have a running list of, hey, questions you should ask, dummy, uh, for a variety of things. And I don't know why, but this kind of slipped. So I'm writing it down right now. Taku, comma, engineer, question mark. Uh he says, if Foyt has issues attracting top-level engineers due to being based primarily in Texas, how come, say, Jeff Brown hasn't been recruited? Uh, dear friend, old friend, Jeff Brown, uh, fine race engineer for hire from West Texas. Uh, he says, or Foyt would partner, say, with Multimatic to aid in engineering and suspension development. Wonder if that might happen. That's a fascinating idea, Kev. I don't know why I never thought of that one. Um I think the issue here would be, uh, I mean, Multimatic has crazy, crazy good engineers throughout the company, but I think they're all going to be attached to existing projects. So farming out uh, IndyCar race engineering to super high caliber race engineer one or two or both or three or whatever, like I just don't think with uh, Porsche and Audi, gtp programs to start developing uh and then go live with the beginning of next year plus uh ford gt3 build and all that coming up a uh, year after that uh plus all the other things they do some of which we know about some that we don't the multimatic one's fascinating but again i just don't know if they have the person they have the personnel would they want to yeah i don't think the money they might receive in order to uh, lease them to an uh, IndyCar team. 
it'd be pennies on the dollar compared to the bigger contracts they have to serve with those engineers. So brilliant idea. I uh, just don't think that would happen. Uh, as for Jeff, that's a really good, a really good question. I should ask Jeff. Uh, I believe he's uh, contracted for the full season to engineer the core Autosport LMP3 entry, uh, of which his son Colin is one of the drivers. But hey, I did it, have this thought, and it wasn't Jeff, but knowing that they want to fill the uh, 11 car Tatiana's driving on the ovals with somebody, I did think about Colin, who is right so good why has nobody ever hired him in indycar i don't know uh at minimum on the ovals of which the guy's like super star caliber maybe there's something here uh yeah i'll engineer your car in the ovals as long as my son drives it uh, i need to I'd, seriously i'm going to text jeff after this and say hey got an idea it's not mine it's kevin's but uh it's a good one uh nick underscore Nick DR underscore 12 from the Reddits. This morning, MP, just two questions. What drivers this coming season have the most to prove? Also, what drivers do you think we might see regress uh, or see progression from this coming season? Great question, Nick. Uh, this is on my list of things I need to write about, so I'll, I'll give you a little, little bit here, but I'll save the deeper dive for a written piece on racer.com. I don't know if there's any crazy secret as to the ones that have the most to prove those would be the two drivers it might even be three who are out of contract at the end of the year or would have a option to pick up at the end of the year um, based on their performances top two clear two been that way for a while mentioned them a couple times as well felix rosenquist without a doubt uh, followed by Alexander Rossi. Bit of a different thing between those two, right? Felix has won one race. Just awesome. Has not troubled the podium with his presence all that much. Uh, he did in, again, with Ganassi, definitely showed some very promising things. Enough where I, I think the general opinion was, hey, need to keep an eye on this guy, right? There's something here, something we can work with. This is going to be headed in the right direction for sure. Uh, if I'm, I'm thinking kind of from a full season standpoint, rookie year with Ganassi, 2018, or, I'm sorry, 2019, Truly impressive, right? Finished, what was it? I think sixth in the standings. Had what, one or two podiums that come to mind? Next year, sophomore season with them. Got that win at Road America, which was, again, awesome. Uh, super awesome. Just the rest of the season uh, wasn't so crazy great. And so when you have, I don't know, your teammate Scott Dixon win the championship and you fall from 6th to 11th in the standings, I think that's just where Felix, if we're talking about feeling the heat, this is where it comes from. 
we have hired you on the potential of what you have demonstrated or we hire we've hired you on what you've demonstrated in terms of potential there we go no more bizarro backwards talk for me felix's best work came as a rookie slid appreciably as a sophomore in his first season of a two-year contract with Aaron McLaren SP, not super complimentary. Some reasons behind that? Chassis setup probably being the biggest area that just did not fit his needs, but nonetheless, he's the guy where we're talking what Aaron McLaren SP might be looking at. They're trying to keep visions of what they saw of him as a rookie. As for the leap, they expect to see him make this year in what would be his fourth season. It's a, it's a tenuous situation to be in. Um, if he is not routinely super close, if not occasionally beating Pato, I wonder and worry as to whether he'll get invited back because we know how good Pato is. I don't believe they have a hiring practice of we want a lead driver and a follower driver. They want to be able to win everywhere they go with both drivers. If one is not capable of doing that, it's going to be a year. It's going to be a year. Uh, Rossi, different scenario. Of course, the Indy 500 win, we know that. Big, high-profile achievement on his end. We also know that even though he is still a, a youngish veteran, uh, we've seen what he can do when everything is working correctly from a championship standpoint. And so knowing that uh, in IndyCar, in at first year, lots to learn, um, no huge expectations for him as a rookie, but uh, that run to second in 2018, third in 2019, right? Those are the things where you go, okay, dude, you showed us. Can you show us again? So I would say that's the two biggest dynamics here to consider between these two, Nick. Uh, one, it's the can you show us what we've never really seen but be- hope and believe exists and that being the transformation from a high-promise rookie to an ass-kicker. The other ones, uh, we have seen it. Can you show us it's still there and even go that one step farther than you have? Uh, Truly being right there for a title. Last one I'll mention here is Elio Castroneves. So yes, he just won Daytona, and it's the happiest thing, and yay, and amazing, and right, great. Uh, he's going to need to be pretty darn fearsome for the first half of the season. I think to get an invite to stay in a full-time capacity next season. Team already tested Nick DeVries, who is a beast. Would just say that's Shank hedging his bets a little bit, wanting to make sure that, you know, he's also said, well, hey, who's, 
Who's to say he won't go to a third car? Right? Who said he's going to be there to replace Elio if things don't go well with Elio? I understand that. But I also understand that Indy 500 is a big deal. If Elio, for whatever reason, is not top five, top six this season, I do wonder if he's going to get a chance to continue his 22-year, however long it is, 23, his forever IndyCar career. It's a weird thing, right? Won the Indy 500, won the Rolex 24. He's part of four drivers, so it wasn't just him. But, right, two massive, massive things for Shank that he's been a part of. Could he not be a full-time driver at the end of this year? Yeah. Oh, boy. There's no lack of young talent wanting to be in that seat. We expect Pagano to be pretty darn close to his former self at minimum which would mean seriously, seriously fast. Um, it's going to, again, it sounds weird for an, someone as accomplished as Elio, but he's going to need to do big things this year to hold on because I think there's a backlog of, of folks who are ready to jump right in. Uh, now, would he continue to get an invite from Shank to do the Indy 500 for however many more years he wants to? 2023 uh, into the future? I think so for sure. Uh, yeah, there's some others too, Nick. Appreciate you asking. And like I said, I got to write about some of the stuff and we'll go uh, deeper into all of them. Uh, Dan Gallagher say uh, top tens come uh, have to come at the expense of someone. So as you look at the teams that are expecting a step forward, Ray Hall, Adam and Lanigan, Aaron McLaren, SP, Meyer Shank Racing, Who's going to give up the space? Are we already uh, going to be looking at a dropped uh, at a drop wheel nut as the reference between sixth and fifteenth this year? Uh, kind enough to mention the end. I always love listening to the show and keeping your family in our prayers. Thank you, Dan. Seriously. Oh, you mentioned the thing that makes my brain hurt, and that is exactly what you've mentioned. Teams are getting better. Some teams have made some power moves, power-ish moves during the offseason, all to get better, all to run towards the front. Top 10. Who the heck goes backwards? Yeah. So, got to look to last year, for example. That's all we have in terms of most recent uh, championship finishing record to maybe guess a little bit. Um, and I feel like I might've done this an episode or two ago, but Hey, uh, we'll do it again here quickly. So the top 10 who might fall. Pelot's going nowhere. New gardens going nowhere. Awards going nowhere. Dixon's going nowhere. Herta's going nowhere. So that's top five, maybe six through 10th. There might be a little bit of something. Marcus Erickson. I would hope not. Do I think Marcus is going to follow up with at least two more wins and another podium? I don't know. He, he almost falls into Nick's category. I don't know if it's heat and pressure. It's just, hey, you went really far 
farther than many folks maybe thought you were capable of. Can you do that two years in a row or three? Marcus might be prone. I don't know if he falls out of the top 10 so much. Don't know if he's out altogether, Dan. Would I be surprised if we finished the year in Marcus's eighth or ninth? I wouldn't, but that's where I truly, because I love the guy, I just want him to show everyone, nope, wasn't a fluke, and I'm not just sixth, I'm fifth or fourth or something. But I do think there's some potential there for uh, some going backwards just due to some other teams getting stronger. Graham Rahal in seventh. Man, it feels like he's going to be moving forward a little bit maybe fifth or sixth or so i don't see him falling out pagino finishing eighth that's one where got to admit i don't know where he's going to be at i really it's a huge question mark in my head i'm sure it isn't in his is he a guy that could fall out of the top 10 as we look across every race on the season averaging all that uh, he's Maybe the first that jumps out as a possibility. Power, who finished ninth last year, is another. I don't know why. I don't want it to be the case. But I can just tell you, it feels like this year is either going to be amazing, and we're talking about Will finishing second or third, or it feels like it's going to be a disaster. I don't get the impression something in the middle, ninth place, which is one of his worst finishes uh, in IndyCar, uh, I don't feel like that's a repeatable thing. So either moving way up or moving out of the top 10. <clears throat> so here's where the things get really hard because you say, well, so to your exact point, Dan, not everybody can live in the top 10. Uh, well, let's talk about who we think might be moving towards the top 10. Uh, Romain Grosjean, I think it'd be shocking if he is not in the top 10 uh, in the standings by the end of the year, if not decently halfway up in the standings. I would also say I think Jack Harvey finished 13th last season. Do I think Jack is going to be P3? No, but I do think he's definitely strong for a top 10. Renus finished 12th last year gotta believe he's going to be in the top 10 there somewhere but again it comes down to this well who do you knock out <laughs> right uh it's going to require some epic disasters that we kind of sort of didn't see coming for that to take place right scotty mclaughlin p14 as a rookie i would have to imagine he'd put in a season's worth of work that would be worthy of the top 10 Oh, but yeah, it's not going to be crazy easy, <laughs> right? Rosenquist, as we know, had the worst of seasons last year. 21st. If everything goes the way that it should with Craig Hampson as his race engineer, top 10 guy, period. Who falls out? Rossi was 10th. We expect him to be closer up, but again, Herda, he's not going anywhere. Um, Ray Hall, I don't feel like he's going anywhere. He's one of the best and most underrated race day performers in the series. 
We know that written about it, all those things. It's just hard to see him collapsing out of the top 10. He's got a rookie teammate in Christian Lundgaard, who I think could and should be flirting with the top 10 on debut. Seems to have that kind of potential. Kyle Kirkwood, look, if the mojo and juju that they had in testing recently somehow carries over, the kid's lightning in a bottle, right? So I'm with you. It's not easy, <laughs> right? Uh, it's not easy figuring out who's fallen out to allow some others in. Uh, but yeah, Pagano, Power, Erickson potentially. So there's three spots, maybe, maybe. But we got more than three that uh, I, I think could be filling. So yeah, the as much as I'd love to give you a definitive answer, I think the biggest answer is, or the biggest point is, you mentioned David Malukas provided the engineering, you know, it provided everything goes well there. I don't know if a top 10 in his rookie season is a thing, but man, that kid's good. Uh, I expect a lot to come from him. Anyways, I probably go in here all day long, but um, to me, the biggest thing here, which the season will obviously reveal, is which one of the, whoa, oh, I did not have you stumbling, faltering, motors blowing up all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, wow, like it's that. It's that thing that I'm looking forward to finding out. Uh, and I feel for whomever that happens to. Uh, accurate dash soup from Reddit. That must be in reference to something I'm unaware of, unless there's some sort of battle for inaccurate soup uh, that has gone on without my awareness. Do you think Jimmy Johnson will get a podium this year? I do. Don't know which oval, but yes, uh, I do. On a road or street course? No. Um, give me two, three more years, and I'd say maybe in just normal conditions, not fluky yellow jumped forward in the field and got a podium, but a couple years maybe there, but yeah, uh, I will be very surprised if Jimmy's not on a podium granted Indy doesn't have a podium, but, uh, whether it's Texas, Indy, Iowa gateway be a very, very big surprise if he doesn't, uh, Keith Swanson, do you think there is a practical format to make oval qualifying as much fun as road and street course without knockout qualifying? Huh. I don't be just cause I can't think of any. We did back in, was it 2000? No, 97, the inaugural Charlotte visionaire 500, uh, IRL race. I believe it was there. Um, we had to do, what was it like one or two flying laps. Then the drivers all had to come onto pit lane have the crew perform a live pit stop and then take off. And I don't remember if they crossed the start finish line and that was it, or they had to do another lap or whatever it was, but that was done to try and spice things up. And so it was, you know, truly a, a total accumulated time thing. So their whatever their hot laps were, plus how long it took to do the pit stop. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was ever tried again. Cause it was kind of lame. 
man, I, we did fairly well with our little Greg Ray team. Uh, I don't remember. I think we, with that, qualified like sixth or seventh. And the father of inaugural IRL co-champion alongside Scott Sharp, Buzz Calkins, uh, Buzz Cox's dad. I don't remember his name. Um, I don't really remember him too much. I'd been around him for years uh, in Indy Lights and whatnot, uh, but just don't remember his dad jumping out in any way. Uh, oh, he was sitting on pit lane as this went on, and we did our qualifying run and did the pit stop, and the car took off. And I don't know. Was it like just the front tires he had to change or something like that? Whatever it was. We're walking back, having just done this and having been fairly pleased with ourselves at whatever track it was as a rookie team, you know, Indy Lights team gone IRL all of a sudden and walking up pit lane, feeling somewhat pleased with ourselves. And Buzz Calkins' dad is, I don't know if he was pointing at us, but it felt like it, but he was screaming at the top of his lungs, cheaters! cheaters and i remember we we're just looking at him like dude what you know this guy's like kind of team ownerish uh you know wealthy guy you would think he'd be somewhat composed but no he's like just laying it on us and not like team owner or like the crew and it's like we didn't cheat because i don't really know how you cheat but anyways um yeah uh yeah, so I don't know of any real gimmicks other than just don't. That's my answer. Sorry, Accurate Soup. Uh, you asked about Jimmy Johnson, not this one. That was from Keith Swanson, but I just mentioned your name. And this is a show I refer to as Mind Polished Turd, where I keep in all the mistakes. So moving on. Mike Matt, 5150. Been a little while. Mike, hey, MP. My question's a broader one. What is your take on Spencer Piggott? He's a sexy man, a sexy, sexy man. Hugely successful on the road to Indy, couple of part-time seasons, full-time coinciding with ECR going on a downturn, and now nothing. In some respects, I feel like he never quite lived up to his potential, but also didn't seem to have much in the way of consistency. What would you uh, chalk his career arc up to? Man, I'm with you. I... I Love me some Spencer Piggott. I really do wish he was still around, still in IndyCar. <sighs> Bit of a classic case of champion-grade talent coming out of the road to Indy, right? Indy Lights champion. Uh, and champion and other stuff before that, too. But really a case of a guy who did not have enough budget in the beginning um, and did not necessarily have exactly the right team or teams uh, with which to develop his talent. And it's not totally uncommon. It does happen from time to time. Um, I mean, my friend Jerry Hildebrand, right? Got two years, was it? Two and a half-ish years with Panther Racing bit of a house of dysfunction, unfortunately, and then just a lot of bouncing around from there. Came back for a year with Ed Carpenter Racing, full season. Uh, a rookie engineer, highly talented one, and my pal Justin Taylor, who 
looked after French fries car last year, Sebastian Bourdais, but he was having to learn uh, through the proverbial fire hose, no oval experience at all. Not exactly the optimal situation for a driver like JR trying to get a second chance in the sport and didn't really pan out the way that he'd hoped. So now it's kind of been indie only. When he went to RLL to open his IndyCar career using um, the somewhat limited amount of uh, advancement money that he had, did well with RLL, right? That kind of 2016-ish era RLL, not exactly a, a fearsome winning machine, but decent, very decent, and I think he did a good job, right? Then... Moved over to Carpenter. Had a couple of really good races, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, a couple of top tens. <sighs> Would say that if you think about what happened afterwards. Uh, staying with Carpenter. Uh, not doing the ovals other than Indy. Decent, but in that post-Joseph Newgarden era, as you mentioned, uh, New Garden's ace race engineer, Jeremy Millis, moving on, going to Andretti. Um, definitely not the same team. <clears throat> Appreciative of what uh, he was able to try and do and what Carpenter tried to make happen with him over those two full seasons that he got. Believe that he went about as far as he could, I, I think... You know, some family money was involved. Spencer doesn't come from like crazy riches, but I, I like the family furniture store, like mom and pop Piggott, you know, selling anything and everything they can to try and help their, uh, their son achieve his IndyCar dream. Um, I think he showed some, some serious potential. I just don't know if the ECR team was as sharp as it needed to be for him to give a full account of his skills. I also don't know if Spencer was at a far enough stage in his driving development to uplift the team to places it hadn't been since Joseph left for Penske. So was definitely surprised to learn that he was not retained uh, at the end of the 2019 season, um, the team's want and need for money certainly seem to outweigh any other factors. So can't hold a grudge against them because they need more money and had to make decisions there. I don't think Connor Daly's done a bad job at all. Uh, again, I, I look forward to Connor having a, a another full season to show what he can do. But yeah, there is something here about Spencer that just feels too unfulfilled. And even though he had a couple fifths and fourths and I think what had that podium at one of the Iowa races, I, I think when Ed Carpenter racing doesn't re-sign you, I think that leads teams to question whether you're meant for IndyCar. 
it's one thing if a Ganassi or Penske says, hey, oh, Penske's a perfect example. Hey, Simon Pagano, we're not going to continue. S- Simon, 500 winner, series champion, really going to fall out of the series? No, of course not. It's going to be someone there to pick him up. In this case, midfield-ish, slightly above midfield-ish team in Myershank Racing saying, you're the perfect fit to help take us to the promised land. Get someone like Spencer, who had some strong occasional performances, but too many events where we just didn't see or feel his presence. Again, whether it was him, whether it was a team, whether it was both. Not a lot of places left to fall that are going to reach out a hand unless you're putting five to six million dollars in that hand. Um, Was able to do some sports car stuff last year in IMSA's kind of second-tier championship, uh, the the Michelin Pilot Challenge. At least for when I texted him a couple weeks ago, said that he had nothing. So uh, truly bums me out because that kid is really good, uh, I believe. Uh, still a little bit of a diamond in the rough, but hopefully a sports car team somewhere will uh, we'll recognize that and give him the love that, uh, you know, he, he deserves it. Everybody needs a little bit of love, including Spigot. Uh, <clears throat> got our cat Rocky sleeping next to me right now, by the way, snoring up a storm. Let's get down to the last couple of questions here, and then I'm going to go finish the racer mailbag and then try and finish a column about good old Heliarch, Elio Castro Neves and probably have dinner and enjoy a couple episodes of Hawkeye, maybe catching up on a lot of shows that I just haven't had time to, uh, to pay attention to. Uh, Sasha Khan 24. Been a little while, Sasha Khan 24. That's my understanding that the cars could have power steering, but the decision has been made not to, partly to leave more in the hands of the drivers. Works for me. But instead of letting the driver adjust the fuel mapping, wouldn't it leave more uh, in the feet of the driver uh, if that setting wasn't available? Uh, Could it help separate the drivers, say Scott Dixon, who's truly great at managing their fuel from others? Seems like a neutral or positive move to enhance the race. But is there a downside and would IndyCar ever go to this? There's something in my brain that says this did happen for a short period of time, but re- in the, I don't know, last decade, but I feel like I'm also totally wrong. Um, it's an interesting one. Consider this. Knowing how important Chevy and Honda happen to be to IndyCar and how IndyCar really doesn't make any, quote, decisions on their own that are major about anything without first consulting Chevy and Honda. I think they might have a hard time taking the good old fuel mapping knob away from those manufacturers. I know that both manufacturers will say no and pull out knives, guns, hatchets, hammers, uh, bows and arrows. Just, we watched, uh, uh, the Hunger Games last night, so that's why that came to mind. Plus, I've been watching Hawkeye. 
why am I watching things on the same night where bows and arrows are the featured weapon? I don't know. Uh, there's no way. It's one of those pry this knob away from my cold dead hands kind of thing. Then you giving it up. Ain't happening. The end. Therefore, uh, hey, IndyCar, <laughs> you can try and put that in the rule book. Both manufacturer reps will walk back with the rule book and say, uh, you, you might need to uh, delete that and print this again because uh, it ain't happening. Um, so, yeah, could be interesting, I guess, but how's this? In rare On rare instances, do you have... Drivers in competition with one another for strong results in the race on vastly different maps. One saving crazy amounts of fuel, other ones burning everything they can. It happens, of course, from time to time, but just on average, it's a rarity. Tend to get both, both or three or four, however many drivers it is, more or less on the same plan. In that scenario, you then have the differences standing out. So you can take it away, but you're still kind of seeing this effect with drivers saving fuel, uh, all running similar-ish, if not darn near identical, uh, burn rates. So, yeah, I hear you. Uh, but I'm of the mind that, like, if you're going to take that stuff away, like, just take it all away. Turn off the dash. Sorry, uh, you got to shift by ear. Like, <laughs> you got to do everything. Uh, just feet, hands, ears, eyes. I don't know what you'd use your mouth for. But, uh, yeah, let's go totally uh, a non-electronics race, except for, like, shifting because it would be a little hard to put in a, a stick shift. But other than letting the paddles work, maybe the drink bottle? I don't know. Um, but other than the, the paddles, like, Everything else off. Radio off. Fuel mixture off. Traction control. Oh, wait a minute. Is there? Oh, no, I wasn't supposed to tell you about traction control. All right. Uh, thanks, Sasha Khan24, by the way. Great to uh, have a question from you. Uh, Colin Young. Doing Colin. Says uh, thinking of traveling from Calgary, Alberta, Canada to the Barber Race. My only other race was Laguna Seca. Indeed. It's been too many years. Uh, how does Barber compare from a fan perspective? Also says best you and Chabrell. Think of Barber in the time of year. Granted, sometimes it rains, so that's it, unless you love rain, not always awesome. But think of Barber uh, since you were last at Laguna and what was it, 2019, Colin? Um, just think of Barber as a way nicer Laguna Zega. Doesn't have a corkscrew. It's got big old rusted metal spiders and other things. Um, it's just a way nicer Laguna Seca. Same kind of layout concept as a Laguna being a don't buy a grandstand seat, bring your fold-out chair and your little canopy or whatever. You know, this is a moving circuit. Go and enjoy over here and then walk over there and enjoy this and go to the infield, go to the outfield. I don't know if you can really go to the infield, disregard that part, but um, it's a touring facility to enjoy with a lot of really, really good vantage points. 
I think Laguna might be a little better in that capacity because you can view it kind of inside the track, outside the track, or outside this, uh, the circuit layout, inside and out. Uh, I think you can get to pretty much every corner just about at Laguna. couple at Barber that might be not so super open to fans, but nonetheless, love that place. It is, it's got an amazing museum overstating the obvious, but that's, you know, uh, get there a day early or stay a day late. Uh, don't try and do the museum and a race day there. Cause you're just going to want all the time, uh, possible, but, uh, it's beautifully kept. It does feel like it's owned by a highly eccentric person with all the little tchotchkes and this is and that's that are placed around the joint uh, and hidden. Well, not hidden because you wouldn't see them if they were hidden, but things stashed in the little, in the little mini forests they've got going on and so on and so forth. Like it's, I think you're going to love it. Uh, it's a little bit more of a hike to get to some of the places than I would say Laguna. Um, Laguna, if you, if you're in the middle of the paddock, walk in any direction and you're going to find something pretty soon on track to spectate and enjoy Barber again, a little bit more effort in that regard. But I think, I think you would love it. Alabama, my wife's home state, uh, definite culture change from Monterey, California and our wine and cheese consuming folks. Uh, definitely a little more of a down home feel there. Uh, some fun local cuisine Leeds, Alabama home city of Charles Barkley. If you're an NBA fan. So anyways, uh, that would be my recommendation. I think you'd love it. If you had to do one or the other, I'd definitely say give Barbara a try. And I don't feel like a total trader. Um, but I do feel like if you've been to Laguna, go and enjoy Barber and report back. Seriously. Uh, why don't we go to left front changer at Paul fur 56 says with Scott Dixon, lightning, the current DW 12, uh, to say junior formula car and with increasing calls to lighten the next Indy car. How exactly can they achieve that? Where does it lose the weight and keep all the safety? What's the goal in power to weight ratio? Say late nineties cart. Um, that is a great question. Uh, I wish I had all the answers here. I have <clears throat> some of the answers. Most of those answers involve the back of the car. And so I would love to tell you that there's lots of places that come to mind with the tub, the safety cell, where oodles and oodles of weight can be taken out. I believe there is some, but I don't know if it's a sizable amount questions to ask things I need to learn more about. Um, 
What I do know is what they have in mind for the back of the car is to turn a lot of things that are of he- made from heavier metals into lighter metals. Those, of course, being somewhat costly things. When it comes to carbon construction and the side cladding, the Xylon anti-intrusion panels, do they just make the sides of the tubs out of it and skip the carbon fiber and aluminum honeycomb again? I don't know. Maybe. Not totally sure on where they take a ton of weight out of the tub, but this is yet again an area that I'm hoping to learn more about. It's a weird thing, though, here. Got about 120-ish pounds going into the back of the car through the new ERS system. We already have the 60 pounds. 58, I believe, is the the number, but 60-ish pounds at the uh, front with the aero screen. Those are big numbers to overcome, right? That's 180 pounds. That's a Ryan Hunter Ray worth of weight to remove from the car. If you're talking about getting it back down to its lighter svelter self, right? That's just a lot. And so could you go to, I'm sure, some crazy exotic materials? Possibly. But then it drives up the cost of the cars to an insane number. This is just a, it's a question for sure here, left front changer, that it's perplexing. And I don't see any ready, easy answers to. More to follow. I'd love to go deeper here. I don't have all the answers yet. I do have some. <clears throat> we should have an article coming out on Racer finally about some of this stuff, maybe even this Tuesday here. But I do need to ask some more questions um, to both IndyCar and Delara, uh, what are they going to do? How can they? How can they take meaningful weight out of the front of the car? Where, what areas can we take it out of the rear? Can we? Because uh, we do have to really start thinking about weight savings since the thing is ballooning in weight. Other component to this is. Let's say we take a bunch of weight off the front of the car through a new design, however that gets done. What do we do to weight distribution? If we take a ton of weight off the front, yay, we're getting the numbers back down to where performance is more impressive. But wow, even though we've reduced some weight at the rear, there's still just an excess of weight out back. The rear weight distribution's crazy high. Oh, That's going to make a car not handle good. (laughs) Um, So it's not just where do we take weight from, how do we, but also you've got to keep in mind the balance of the thing because if this thing is just tipped on its nose, tipped on its rear wheels, doesn't matter how much power you stuff into the thing, it's only going to perform in a straight line and then just be a dog in the corners. So lots to figure out here. Without a doubt, and and I wish there were some bigger things I could give you right now, but even myself, I need to learn a little bit. 
All right. Uh, where are we going to go? The last couple here. Our pal, right turn lover. Is there a U.S. triple crown of motor racing? And has anybody actually won it? Well, that's a great question. Is there? What would the third be? I think it's really easy to say Indy 500, Daytona 500. Is it the Rolex 24? Is it the 12 hours of Sebring? Is it a Monster Jam event somewhere? Monster Jam Oakland, which we had recently. Still haven't been to one of those events. I need to go. Uh, what else? I, mean, I think someone in response mentioned Pike's Peak. Eh, I don't know if I'd mention that. Or I don't know if I'd put that up just knowing that there are definitely some pretty amazing folks that go up the mountain, but uh, it's still a super pro-am event. So if I'm talking like unquestionable pro-amazingness, what else? I don't know. Uh, Indy 500, Daytona 500, Rolex 24. That's it. Question answered. Might be totally wrong. If you disagree, give me your thoughts uh, for next week's show, and I'll do my best. Uh, let's see. couple here to close. Steve Bonex. Steve, thanks for sending this back in. Mentioned I didn't get to it last week. I meant to, but I failed. Uh, my mental weight distribution was off, Steve. Um, when it comes to pictures and what other teams can see, can you really tell wing angles, etc., from a picture? Their markings or something that say gives it away. Knowing that there's like five configurations of, of wing usages throughout the year, road course, street course, super speedway, short oval, intermediate ish oval. Um, yeah, a, a trained eye can for sure. Can even spot suspension settings and i'm not saying you know exactly what it is like it's 3.4 degrees of negative camber on the right front tire but you can have an idea at least relative to what you are doing right that's the thing where photographic imagery it's the same thing uh can be useful if you're curious or trying to gauge what you're doing compared to others then go back if i'm talking indianapolis motor speedway uh, where you can compare what you did during a run to another team you're trying to do a bit of uh, of spy spotting on this does take some correlation we went out at 1 32 p.m this ambient this that and all the other environmental items tracked we had our car with this exact setup on it, these wing angles, this little wicker, this toe, this whatever, this cross weight. And then we have photos from a rival team who we think is onto something or whatever. And they went out at 144. And maybe the winds had changed a little bit. Again, you need to track all these things to at least be able to say, okay, uh, I feel like we know, have a good idea of what they did and what we did. Still no exact clues to what fuel load would be. Might not know exactly what the tire life was, but again, there's a couple of variables you're probably not going to be able to ace. But if you go out with your front wing set at angle A, 
and no gurneys on them. And a team you're tracking goes out, you've got photos, and you can see, okay, looks like their wing angle's pretty close, but they've added a, a short three-inch wide X whatever tall gurney on the left front flap. Lease can maybe give you a little bit of an idea of what they did, what you did, and did they see an improvement, not see an improvement? Granted, a little wickerish thing like that. I don't know if that's going to be the, oh, big spy reveal, but just saying. Like, if you're really trying to document what others are doing, you can with some of those aforementioned variables in mind. Last little thing I'll mention here is you don't, see during practice race engineers walking up and down the pit lane or whatever it might be so much because they get chased away but you will see some of them walk whatever amount of distance that they can uh hoping to before going to the break on the wall say to go back to gasoline alley or wherever this might be um it's not uncommon for them to walk along pit lane at the end of the session and they might, they probably have sunglasses on, but their eyes are absolutely taking mental pictures of what they're seeing in terms of, uh, tire behavior, what they see. Hey, this is the evidence of the tire coming off the track. Um, this is how it behaved. They're looking at wing angles. They're trying to gauge camber and toe and, and such. Like I said, not necessarily going to nail everything, but at least good comparisons as to what they're doing. Definitely pre-grid. That's where you... <laughs> that's where if you know your race engineers and you happen to be sitting, standing somewhere on pit lane, that's when it becomes fun because... If I bump into a race engineer on the grid, whether they're with their car or someone else's, um, we end up having interesting conversations like, aha, I see they're running a little less rear wing on Herta's car than ours. Okay. You know, that's something they will take into account. Hey, driver, uh, keep in mind, Herta might have a little bit of a dragster on the long straight here at Long Beach, but... Uh, some of the slower speed corners, medium speed corners might be a little bit exposed without the same amount of rear downforce to keep the thing planted and you might be able to set them up here or there. Um, they're looking at everything that they can just to close. And that's a common thing. Like they're all doing it, all trying to see what, he, what each other's doing and making notes about it and then seeing who performed well, who didn't stuff they might think about that they hadn't thought about. Who knows? Um, possibly to change during the race if they could. But the, uh, the other thing, which I always loved when I was working at Sears point, my first major pro racing shop and such Pfeiffer Ridge racing, we had the good fortune to, uh, have our shop next to Tom Gloy's former driver of everything. Um, super successful guy, great guy. Uh, driver, engineer, you name it, super smart guy. And he had a practice of whether their cars, this is when they were running Trans Am cars. He was an open wheel guy too, but um, Trans Am cars sitting in his shop, you know, door rolled up, 
always had the front wheels cranked all the way left or all the way, all the way right. I don't know if it was a standard thing where they all went to one direction, but knowing that he walking along, especially if the wheels were off the car and the suspension brake discs and all that were exposed, becomes a little bit easier to see. You can get a pretty darn good idea, at least the front of the car of the camber and tow uh, on your rival's vehicles. So not really something you can do if you crank the steering wheel all the way to the right and leave it there when the car is sitting up on stands. And they would do that at races too. You walk by their tent, things are always turned all the way in one direction if the body work off doing whatever work on the car. Uh, just because he didn't want to give any of that stuff away, and he knows because he's doing it himself, you can pick up a couple things. So, yeah, fun stuff here. Uh, thanks again, Steve, for sending that in. Where am I going here? Okay, couple here. Uh, Don Gregory, you're asking about DPI engines. Could we get those into IndyCar? No, they're too big. Um, just wouldn't fit you'd have to redesign the car's aerodynamics the floor the this the like uh just not really uh not really a a thing uh we're going to close the show with a couple of quick questions here starting off with our pal hrishi despond hrishi appreciate you really do appreciate all the uh cool stuff you send in and also you just being a really positive person trying to share your love for motor racing with folks on good old social media even the prude Yes, what's the latest on the next IndyCar chassis? Seems like things have gone a bit cold on that front. What does the timeline look like for initial designs and eventual testing, assuming a 2024-2025 debut is still planned? Matt Mendenhall, you ask something similar. I'll get to that in just a sec. Um, I'd love to tell you, see? I wish I knew, see? I don't know. See, it's so damn frustrating, Hrishi. I asked the big guy in charge, the fat cat, Jay Fry. Hey, Jay, when do we get a new chassis, see? And you know what he says to me? I've got a five-year plan, see? And it's always evolving, see? And we're going to do a new chassis. I say, well, it's fantastic. So did you have a year? You might suggest as for when that would happen. And he says... Yeah, we're going to use Delara, see? There's a five-year plan, and it's ever-evolving, see? And we'll talk to our, our, our constituents in the paddock, see? And they'll be the ones who tell us this is the time for a new chassis, see? To which I say, oh, fantastic information, Jay. I didn't have that before, but now I have it now. I was going to see if you'd give me another slice of information. It might sound a little bit familiar in terms of a request from me to you, what year are you thinking of changing the chassis, Jay? To which he says, well, we've got a five-year plan, Marshall, and we're going to develop that five-year plan, and within that plan, there are plans. And when we're planning within that five-year plan, the plans that will possibly be planned involve a new chassis, and Delara's going to make it, and we're going to make it fantastic, and the teams that use it are going to tell us when it's time that we need one, and the manufacturers see, because they're waiting for one, too. So then I say... That's excellent information yet again, Jay, although it sounds a lot like the first piece of information you gave me. And then when I asked the second time, see, you kind of told me the same thing, but with some slightly different things, see. And then I asked a third time, wondering if there was a, a basic 
failure in communication, see, and uh, you told me that there's a five-year plan, which I'd known about from the previous question and the question before, see, uh, but then you didn't give an answer to the question, see, so, but we do know it's Delara and we do know it's coming, but we don't know what year. So if I were to ask, say a fifth time, see, when is the new chassis coming to which he would say, I've got a five-year plan, see, and then the phone gets smashed, see, and I call the operator, say, operator, do you have an idea of when a new chassis is coming? Because I've asked the man who should know, but all I understand, see, is that I can't see what he sees other than there's a five-year plan, see, and I don't know within that five-year plan when we're getting a new chassis, see. Yes, I've lost my mind, but I just couldn't avoid doing my old-timey voice that I stole from Dave Chappelle, see? Doing an old-timey voice from the 30s gangster movie, see? Or is that the 20s? I don't remember, see? I wasn't alive then, see? I don't know, brother. Um, it would be 2023 if teams and drivers had their way. Uh... Do I think we could hear it would be 2024? Yes. Do I think we would then probably hear it's been delayed to 2025? Yes. I I don't know. I just don't know. I've answered many of the things that were nagging me, wanting to know about IndyCar's technological future. That's part of the story that's in the new issue of Racer Magazine. You can get it this moment through the digital subscription, maybe even the print has shown up uh, in your mailbox um, because it's got a lot of good kernels in there that we slash I have truly hunted like mad dogs for almost two years and finally got, uh, we're actually going to push that magazine story onto the website as I was told here Tuesday. So, uh, but the elusive, when are we going to get a new chassis? See, <sighs> Let me tell you about a five-year plan, Arishi. Uh, Matt, you say, given all the next-gen chassis discussion, curious what happens to the decommissioned bodies repurposed for training? Or could a fan dumpster dive at a team shop? Matt, you tell me when we're going dumpster diving. And uh, we are going to have so much UAK-18 body work to, uh, uh, I don't know, live in? What if we did that? What if we made a house? out of uh, used IndyCar bodywork. I don't know. It'd probably be drafty, a little cold. Um, so the bodywork tends to stay with the cars, knowing that there's multiple sets of bodywork. Teams tend to hold on to that stuff for things I don't fully understand. Uh, some teams don't. Uh, some go to landfill, like you might go, wait a minute, isn't that super expensive? Yeah. But after holding on to it for five years and you've got, Hey, I've got four sets of body work or per car, or I should say per car, but an outrageous amount of stuff to hold on to. Like, yeah, you'd be surprised how some of the stuff, uh, just is disposed of uh, other situations, nephews, nieces, cousins, you name it, of the team owner, principals, driver, whatever, get some cool memorabilia but um i don't know what they'd be repurposed for. i don't know what training they'd be repurposed for but uh it's an interesting note i just don't know what it means uh two to go uh one question and one note 
Uh, our pal Wendy Carr at Car underscore Wendy on Twitter says MP Simple One. What happened to Harding Racing? Or specifically, what happened to Mike Harding? Did they just completely and totally walk away from IndyCar? Uh, with lots of new teams, new entries, and new interest in the series, it's a shame to see them go. Seemed like kind of a quiet finale for them. Yeah, uh, things that I think I know, think I understand. Some of these things are allegedly, I don't really know if there's more drama to it than that. But uh, in the announcement that they would be going to IndyCar, two-car, full-time team, Pato Award, Colton Herta. Unable to find the sponsorship that they expected, they being Mike Harding. Mike Harding wasn't the only one involved here. There were, you know, a couple people involved. But uh, on the Colton side, with his man, Sean Jones, also young Mr. George Steinbrenner, the 19th, there was a, a support package, whether it's, being able to bring some funding or networking to find funding. There was a support group around Colton that Pato did not have. It's not a negative against Pato. I'm just saying between the two, since Mike Harding, who thought, oh, we're going to be able to find zillions, and then zillions didn't arrive, he ended up going with the single driver, which brought the best possibility of being able to find funding that's why pato was air quote dropped although i do seem to recall there being an attempt to i wanted to use the word extort i don't know if that's right allegedly um hey we're not going to run you because we don't have any money to run you but we have you under contract so we want to try and get money off of that so if you want to go drive for someone else you'll have to buy your way out Recall hearing that story and just being like, are you effing kidding me? Are you kidding me? Reigning any lights champ, you, you've welched on your, your promise and contract, and while leaving this kid, hanging him out to dry, instead of doing the right thing and saying, sorry, we can't do what we said we would. We want to let you go as early as we can so you can try and find something. Allegedly try and squeeze money out of him to then go try and find something at the last minute it's just like wow whatever amount of respect i might have had beforehand yeah um as i understand it a company was sold something along those lines and the play money was no longer necessarily being made available also heard plenty of stories about alleged improprieties and whatnot whatever whatever that led to a divorce and a concern that a lot of things were leaving and going to be under the possession of former mrs harding again i wasn't there for any of this right i wasn't standing there as these things happened uh, i heard some other things that supposedly happened that were like oh my goodness um allegedly so that's what happened, man. Uh, money got tight. Possibility of a lot of money and savings going away. And what do you do when you can barely afford to run a single Indy car for a season? Right? There there were some serious Hail Marys done to keep Colton's car on track for his full 2019 season debut. Um, 
you merge with Andretti, you bring some merge air quote, uh, you've got some assets to bring and so, and, and whatnot, but not really a money person anymore. And then I think that just kind of led to its natural conclusion. Cause once Michael had Colton under full, I think he always had him under full contract, but minus additional entanglements, co, co, co entries and whatnot. Um, I think things just got simple, even though Michael Andretti and Michael Harding are said to be super extra close pals. I think this just kind of led to its natural conclusion, uh, which is why we don't see Mike involved anymore. Uh, final question here for the week. And if there are any that I didn't get to that you really want answered, uh, send them in for next week. Cause I don't know, there's nothing majorly going on that should surprise us in terms of news. Then uh, please do so. Thanks once again to James. We call him Jim Kaiser for putting together the questions for me. One of the great blessings in uh, our lives here. Uh, we're going to go to a simple statement um, and comment and question. And that being Dave at Dave Nid, Dave NID on Twitter. Which IndyCar reporter captures the best post race interviews on Twitter and why is it Retro Rebel? Yeah, I love it. Uh, our pal Olivia, uh, high school age IndyCar reporter, she is amazing. Her dad and mom and whole family, uh, but primarily uh, it's Olivia and her dad who go to a lot of races, a lot of tests. They're based in Florida. Um, better known as the Retro Rebel. That is her handle on the good old Twitters and I believe Instagram as well. Do yourself a favor. Uh, just wanted to sing a little bit of Stevie Wonder here for whatever reason. Uh, search for Retro Rebel on Twitter, on Instagram. Find her, follow her. Uh, I jokingly say that she's my future boss because I'm sure when I'm, you know, whatever years old and she's, you know, done with college or whatever, like um, she might be the only person left to employ me. But <laughs> she's awesome. She has a work ethic that will serve her immensely in life. I don't say this to be unintentionally hostile towards some other IndyCar reporters, uh, but she works harder than some of the veterans that I know. She's more creative. Uh, she's just seriously like, I wish Olivia was 19, 23, 28, whatever, uh, old enough, sovereign enough to say, Hey kid, cause I'm, two to three times her age. Um, can't wait to see you at St. Pete, at Indy, at wherever, because you and I are going to kick the living bleep out of everyone else with our written content, our videos, our photos, you name it, for Racer Magazine, for racer.com. We're going to go do some great stuff. So could she do some of that while at her youngish high school age? I don't know. Uh, it's another question I'm hoping to get answered because the age thing doesn't matter. I mean, right. Uh, other than could she get the correct credentials, but just uh, look, you've got such a bright future. You have energy personality. I'll fall back to this work ethic thing. Again, editing videos, getting great interviews with folks. She's built great rapports with 
IndyCar drivers, team owners, sports car stuff. She'll go to drag racing. She'll go to where, you know, um, seriously, no joke. There are some folks that I have known, do know, who have or currently work, whether it's IndyCar, sports cars, you name it, and the media. And I look at them, and in my mind, I laugh at them because I don't know her exact age, but let's just say there is a 14 year old who works your ass into the ground. Imagine what she can do with full access, full support, uh, an outlet behind her to let her go wild and do everything she wants to. Um, yeah, she's going to be retiring some folks. Uh, provided she wants to and wants to continue doing this and become a professional reporter and whatever else. Like, seriously, she's going to be putting people out of work because whether it's racer, and she's not putting me out of work, but if she goes to work at some other outlets, I guarantee you those editors are going to be saying, why am I paying you? <laughs> she does her job plus the equivalent of yours. Don't She does, she's two or three or four people in one and she loves this and is awesome and brings great personality and folks are just delighted to have her around them. Like what's your excuse, dude. So anyways, future super bright. Um, the minute I got learned about her, uh, the is the minute I became an instant fan and will constantly, uh, uh, promote whatever she's doing and give her all the props in the world. Cause honestly, uh, we need more like Olivia in our sport. So that's our podcast for this week. Appreciate all of you. I think we're going to have Mike Shank on as our guest. We're going to talk IndyCar. Obviously we're going to talk Rolex 24, but I think we're going to have good old, uh, Shankity Shank on Wednesday. So we'll put out the call for questions here shortly. Once I get that confirmed, other than that, thanks for your questions, Jim Kaiser. Thank you. Once again, all of you, nothing but love from my wife and I, and Rocky, who's still sleeping and snoring. Hey, buddy. Sorry for waking you up, pal. Oh, he looks pissed. I'm not sure where Rosie is. She's beating up something somewhere. Uh, Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Thanks to you for all that you do. Speak to you here soon.